Amen. You guys can have a seat. Thanks for praying for me, brother. I appreciate it. That's a good thing when you're a pastor, when you have a church that prays for you. It's a, it's a gift, and I know you guys do. I'm very thankful for that. Uh, as you guys have a seat, you can open up your Bibles to Ephesians 5. We're continuing on our walk through the epistle of Ephesians. And as you do that, though, I'm going to read you a verse from Matthew. In Matthew 10, 16, Jesus said this, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So those words of Jesus are Jesus telling his disciples, and through his disciples, telling his church uh, what they should expect as they do life in this world, right? Life in this world for the church is not a rose garden. Uh, to be sent as sheep among wolves is not, it's not a good place for sheep to be. It's not a comfortable place for sheep to be. It's not a safe place for sheep to be, right? Jesus is pointing out that, that navigating this world with its sin and its suffering and its complexity is hard in and of itself, but then when you add on top of it, trying to navigate this world and all those things and trying to do that faithfully as a Christian, as a sojourner and an alien, we read in other parts of scriptures that describe our, our life here, is incredibly difficult, incredibly difficult. To the point where, where Jesus says it takes these two qualities that you don't usually put together. He says we need to be, to be wise like serpents, right? Wisdom, shrewdness, street smarts, this kind, that's that kind of idea. This is the kind of language that was used of the serpent in the garden. Right? Which is weird. We don't usually think about that kind of stuff as a positive thing. But then paired with the innocence and harmlessness of doves. That's not a tough, it's not two easy things to pair together, right? Well, I think our life experience, right, of trying to live as faithful Christians in this world will bear out Jesus' words, right? It is not easy. It is not easy. It's very, very hard. Sometimes it's hard to even know what faithfulness looks like. And then even when we do, faithfulness is sometimes a very hard and difficult road to walk, all right? And so we need to be equipped for this, right? We need this wisdom and we need this innocence. And the place we get that is from Scripture. And as we look at Ephesians 5, we've been walking through lately what our new life that we've been given as a gift of grace, how it looks now, how does it play out as we relate to each other in the church, and our passage in Ephesians 5 today is going to shift, and it's actually going to focus a little bit more on how we relate to the world around us, right? Because that has changed too because of who we are in Christ. So we're going to go to God's word to gain what we need to navigate this world with wisdom and innocence, as Jesus called us to. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 1, we read this. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, 
For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, as it says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let me pray for us. Lord, I ask the blessing on the reading of your word, and I ask your help in the preaching of your word. Now, Lord, um, this is... This is such a hard thing to do. Uh, it goes so, uh, cuts against our flesh so much. What we naturally want to do with the things you're talking about here is so different than what we are called to. So I ask for your spirit's help. Give us ears to hear and soft hearts to change uh, as your spirit works in us. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Okay, so before we get into what we are to do, Paul, as he likes to do, as he spent the whole first three chapters of Ephesians doing, he first reminds us of who we are, who we are. One of the things we always say here is that the Christian life is status forward, right? We are given, we're gifted an identity, and we live out of that identity. We're not working and striving to become something that we're not. So Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So one of the first things we need to know in order to engage the world, right, is we have to know who we are, right? That's, that's a huge part of the equation. How, who are we as we go out into the world? And we see here that our identity is that we are beloved children. We're beloved children. As Christians, our identity is not found in who we are by nature, in how much we've grown, in what we've accomplished, in how hard we have worked, our identity is found in how we have been loved. Our identity is found in how we have been loved. We have been loved by the greatest being in the universe. And he holds nothing back when it comes to this love, not even his own son. Right? I love this picture of being beloved children because it, it captures so many things. The Bible talks about us being born again. Right? We, we now share a DNA, right? The same way a kid grows up to look like his parents, because there's this common genetic thing going on. Same thing happens with us with God through the Holy Spirit, right? There's, there's that aspect of things. But kids also grow up to be like their parents because of the influence, right? That's who they're around all the time, right? My kids are adopted, and they still say all kinds of stuff like me and like Susan, right? It happens because they're around us all the time. They pick up on those kinds of things. Right? So we become imitators of God because we are children. Because we're his children, this is what he moves us into. This is our identity. And so that's why Paul says, because you are loved, you're beloved children, now walk in love. Right? Reflect what you have been given. Right? We love because he first loved us. This is, this is the core thing that Paul is wanting to remind them of now. Your identity is that you are loved, not because of anything good in you, but because of who God is. And now, in turn, you can follow the model of your big brother, Jesus Christ, and you can walk 
in that type of love that you have been given. So this is our short answer to how we engage with the world. We are to walk in love. We are to love the world. But we need to define that, right? Because we could have that mean all sorts of different things. And you hear it called all sorts of different things. You will not find one answer if you go to a variety of churches on how we should engage the world. You find all different answers. So what does love look like when we think about what it means to relate to those who do not share our faith, who do not trust Christ, who maybe are diametrically opposed to Christ and what we have our hope and our faith in? How does love play out in that context? That's what this passage leads us through. And I think if we were to go to the world itself and ask for an answer, right, and say, hey, I do this, I'll do this with my wife sometimes, like, hey, Help me know how to love you. Because I can do something that I mean to be loving and it doesn't come across as love to her, right? Like, it worked out really good in my head, but it doesn't work out when I actually do it because I missed something, right? So, so what if we went to the world and said, hey, what, how do we love you? If we were able to pull everybody out there who doesn't trust Christ, I think we'd probably get pretty much everything would be in the same vein, same kind of answer. It would be along the lines of affirm me accommodate who I am and what I like. Celebrate me. Tell me that I am enough and that what I want and do is good. It's pretty much what they'd want us to do. Like, that's how I want you to relate to me. Do these things. But that doesn't work for us, right? Because the world doesn't get to define love. God defines love. He is love, right? He is the only thing that defines love. So we can't look there for our answer. And in fact, when we look at God's word, the way the world would like to be loved is not actually love at all. It's actually hatred. And that's what we're going to see when we look at this next section of our passage. Paul goes on in verse 3 to say, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you as is proper for the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. So Paul says, when it comes to what it looks like to love the world, well, the first things he tells us is don't do the stuff they do. Don't do the stuff they do. He lists three things. He could have listed tons of them. Any of these lists we get with sins, none of them are exhaustive. Right, he's just trying to give us, get us going in the right direction. So he's sexual immorality. This term refers particularly to adultery or prostitution. It's, it's kind of a more specific word. But then he follows it up with all impurity, which is an extremely broad term that basically covers anything that's not holy. Right? So from an arrow to pretty much everything you can possibly think of that's sin. And lastly, he talks about coveting, which is really the, the inner driver of our actions, right? This isn't something you do outward, but it's the thing that drives you to all the other sinful actions. You want something that you don't have, and so you go and take it, right? But I think the important thing for us to notice here, like, this is just what we do naturally in our sin, right? This is, this is what, how we operate. But the key thing is not the differences between these terms, it's the commonality. That's where we, we actually see what we need to see here. Because what all these things share in common 
is that they are all exploiting others for your benefit. Sexual immorality is exploiting somebody else for your pleasure. All sin, all of sin is exploiting other people to get something for yourself. This is very much embedded in the idea of coveting, right? I want something you have. This is how sin functions. Whereas God said the, the law gets summed up in love your God and love your neighbor, sin is the opposite. Sin is use your neighbor for yourself. It's the opposite of love. Love is giving of yourself for the good of another. These, all, these sins paint the picture of actually using other people for your own good, for your own selfish gain. And when Paul says these things are not even to be named among us, he doesn't mean you can't say the word. He just wrote the words, right? He's meaning that they, they, these should be so abhorrent to us. The, the life of sin, this idea of relating to people in this sinful way should just, it should seem, it should seem beneath us. Not that we don't do it, but it just doesn't fit with who we are anymore, right? That's the idea that he's getting at. So first and foremost is we don't jump in with what the world does by nature. This is what the world does. This is how we naturally relate in our sin. But then Paul goes on to talk about some of the ways we talk. And it's interesting with these, because the other thing we need to not do is we don't need to just not do what they do. We need to not normalize what they do. Right? So these three words, he talks about filthiness, which means it means talk about anything that's kind of shameful, right? He talks about foolish talk. This is things that are silly, trivial. And the last thing, crude joking. This is a different word. It's actually used positively most of the time in the, the New Testament era. It's only used this time in the New Testament itself. But it's more along the lines of like being witty and cutting, um, clever, right? But the idea with all of these words is they're all ways with your speech in which you kind of make allowance for sin, right? To talk about it, to discuss it. How many times can you normalize or whitewash something that's wrong with a little bit of humor? I can do it. I do it. I'm great at that, right? You hear it all the time, right? Or talk about these trivial things or shameful things in a way that lessens what they actually are. That's what Paul's getting at. He's like, hey, don't have these be part of your conversation to where this kind of stuff is, is normal and the level of seriousness is brought down and brought down and brought down as it just becomes familiar through your words and thoughts. Does that make sense? That's what he's doing. So he's like, not, not, don't just do these things, but don't contribute to kind of making this the normal culture, right? That's not what you're to do either. Because that, again, that's another way to uh, kind of let, if you do what the world does, then they feel okay about it, right? If you kind of normalize it, soften the blow. Again, we're trying, that's that, we're loving the world the way the world wants to be loved. Approve of me, accept me, affirm what I do. These words have the effect of normalizing and desensitizing us to sin. All right, and Paul goes on to talk about how we shouldn't be partners with them in these things. And this is kind of continuing this same flow of thought. We shouldn't have anything to do with facilitating people's sin, encouraging them towards sin. We don't want to do anything to take the edge off of God's law, right? We don't want to take anything to take the edge off God's law and demands. They should always have their, their full 
wait. Paul says instead, we should speak in with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. Think about what thanksgiving is. Like thanksgiving flows from somebody who already has, right? They've already been given something. They've already received what they need, and so now they're thankful and grateful, right? Sin is always, sin is a striving. Sin is a chasing after something that you feel like you need and that you, that you need to have. That's what sin does. Sin lies. It gives, makes you promises. It says, hey, if you just pursue this, if you just have this, then you'll be okay. If you just, if you just go a little further with this, then you'll be all right. It always promises and never satisfies, Thankfulness is the opposite response, which you maybe wouldn't think of right away, because thankfulness is what flows out of recognizing that you've already been given all that you need. All right, so this is, thankfulness is an incredible guard against sin, against falling into these things, because thankfulness is a constant reminder. Thankfulness drives you back to the reality that you have been given all that you need. You don't have to buy the lies of sin because there's nothing you lack. Anything sin can promise you, you have more and better and truer in Jesus already. It helps you to see through the lies. Words of thanksgiving are the words that are fit, fit with the nature of the gospel. For those of us who have received so much in Christ. Okay, so... Why don't we do this, right? Why is it bad for us to kind of soften the weight of sin, soften the weight, weight of God's law, right? What I'm not talking about here is doing what the Pharisees did, where they tried to beat people into outer compliance with the law. That's not what we're talking about. What I'm talking about is feeling the full weight of what God demands, right? So that they will come to realize that they don't meet it. Not trying to force them into an outward conformity where they can be deluded into thinking they have self-righteousness, but to despair of their righteousness. That's the goal. And when we soften the law, we end up making people feel like they're okay. And the reason we can't do this is because they're not. They are not okay. Paul says it explicitly where the path of sin leads. Sin gets you the wrath of God an exclusion from his kingdom. We cannot reduce the seriousness of sin because the consequences are devastating. They're utterly devastating. One of the things that, that drove this home for me, and I think in a way I hadn't heard before, actually was from a guy who's an atheist. Um, and he is a comedian. His name's Penn Jillette, And he was talking about uh, a guy who gave him a Bible after one of his shows. And uh, he doesn't buy Christianity at all, but this is what he went on to say. He was just doing a little monologue about this. He said, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, and atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe in everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that the truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you 
And this is more important than that. This is a, an avowed atheist. He spends a lot of his time making fun of Christians. And he sees the implications of this, right? When we see people in their sin, they are damned to hell. And when we soften it just to make life a little bit easier and smoother and a little more comfortable for them, we are not helping. That is not love. That is hatred. Because we are, dilute, we are letting them think that they are okay when they are not. That is not love. And it doesn't matter whether the world thinks it is or not. Right? This is why we have to, as a church, we have to preach the full weight of God's law without softening it a bit because we have to be reminded all the time of what our sin costs us and that we cannot be good enough on our own, that we need to be delivered, we need to be saved. So accommodation, affirmation is not the way we are called to relate to this world. As appealing as it might be, and as easy, I mean, it just it seems like just the easiest thing, just soften a few things here and there and life gets smoother. But that's selfish. That's selfish. We're prioritizing our own comfort over the souls of men and women who are enslaved and blind to where their sin is leading them. And they're desperate, so they're just going after thing after thing after thing, trying to be okay. And we have the thing that can actually make them okay. And we'd rather just, you know, smooth out the relationship a little bit. So that's one way that we could relate to the world that we need not to. Right? But we need to be careful about an overcorrection. Right? Because on that hand, we're kind of cozying up to the world, trying to be like it, trying to fit in. See, we're not really that different. We can go the opposite way, where we set ourselves up in this relationship of animosity against the world. It's us against them, right? We treat the world as our enemy, as a danger and a threat to us, right? This is what the Pharisees did, right? This is what the Pharisees did when they bludgeoned people into outward conformity to the law. That's what they were doing. It's us versus them. We need to make people comply with this, right? And that is not what God is calling us to either, because if we go this way, we're again taking our cue from the world, just the other side of what they would ask of us. Right? This is what the world does. You either approve of me or you're my enemy and I hate you. Right? There, there's, there's nothing else. Those are the two sides of the coin you can land on. This is our culture everywhere. This is what cancel culture is. You either celebrate where I land on something or I'm done with you. That is not who we are. If we go that way, we're taking our cue from the world rather than the Lord. So let's read the next section of our passage and see what the Lord gives us instead. Starting, picking up in verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So for all... 
we're not supposed to accommodate the world and we are not to be going to war with those outside of Christ, what, what's the third way? What are we actually called to? That's what we see here, and we see it through this contrast, this picture, this metaphor that Paul gives us of light and dark. We are light and the world outside is dark. And there's two key things we need to see about this picture. Two key things. Light, there's really two realities he's trying to communicate with us through this picture. One, light means holiness, perfection, righteousness. 1 John 1.5 tells us God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. That's what that is getting at. That's one aspect. The other aspect is that light equals clarity. Seeing things rightly. Understanding things as they really are. No longer being blinded, but seeing, seeing things as they are. Right? And by contrast, darkness is the opposite. Darkness is wickedness, sin, unrighteousness. But it also is blindness. It's the inability to understand things as they really are. Confusion, things being twisted and not aligned with reality in the way you perceive. So how does light engage with darkness? A couple of things. The first thing that we can draw from this is that a key component of the way the light relates to darkness, and we are the light, is that it happens with humility. It happens with humility, not superiority. Because sometimes this happens, right? We look at the sinful world out there and we're like, look at all that stuff they're doing. Look at all the stuff they approve of. They're crazy. I agree with God's law over here. This is very much what the Pharisees did. And it's so easy to do that, right? Like, we see people believe crazy things and do crazy things. But here in this passage, we're told that we were darkness, Right? We, in and of ourselves, are no different fundamentally than everybody out there who doesn't trust Jesus. We are the same, right? We are no better than them. There's nothing better in us than there is in them. We have not done better. We are not better than the world around us. We are simply better off because Jesus rescued us. That's very different, right? And so we have no place to stand above and look down our noses in self-righteousness at the world around us. Like, I can't believe you down there. Like, how can you live like that? How could you buy this stuff? Because we're that. We are that. We are not better than that. We see this because we were, we were darkness below, and that we see this in that we are light in the Lord. We are not light on our, on our own. We are light in the Lord. We're children of light. Our light is not sourced in us, right? Our light comes from outside of us. It's not our doing, right? It, it points to the fact that we're passive in this. We are light because God made us light, not because we're better. Right? We are not the sun. We're more like the moon. What does the sun do? It generates its own light. It's a big burning ball of gas, right? Does the moon generate any light? No, it only has light because of the sun. That's who we are. There is no light in us that's sourced in us. It all comes from Jesus Christ. We are just recipients of it. So this should humble us, right? We should not look down on those who haven't trusted Christ, those who are lost in sin. It should conjure up our empathy and our sorrow not our anger and our arrogance and our pride. 
So that's the first thing. We relate to the darkness with humility, gentleness. But we're also called to expose the darkness. This is the other thing that light does. It exposes the darkness. And when we think about this, we need to remember how darkness or sin, how sin really works, right? We are desperate because of sin, right? Ever since Adam fell, we are born at a moral deficit that whether we know what it is or not, we all feel because we're all made in the image of God and we know that there's gap, that gap is there. Whether you know it's sin and it started in Genesis 3 or not, we all carry that with us. And so we are born into this world utterly desperate, utterly needy. And what sin does is it plays on that. It makes promises, right? It says, oh, this is what you need. This will, this will give you what you need. This will make you okay. It lies, then it fails, and then it lies again. And it does this over and over and over again. Right? And because of this, we are, we're blind to sin's true nature, and we're susceptible to its lies. This is part of what sin did to us. So in, in this desperate condition, and unable to see things clearly, the other aspect of darkness, we run to things that promise to make us feel better. But all these promises give the opposite of what they offer. They offer life and they give death. The nature of darkness and sin is not just that it's wrong, but that it's wrong that seems right. right? It's wrong that it's death wrapped in the promise of life. It's, it's slavery that masquerades as freedom. And so to expose darkness is not to simply be right. Right? For, for the light to expose it's not to just be right or to protect our rights. It is to set captives free. So what does this look like? First thing, we accept what God says about sin and reject the sins, that li the lies that sin tells about itself, right? We are going to affirm and proclaim God's law in its full weight. I already mentioned this, right? We affirm what God says is good is good, and what he says is bad is bad. He is the standard for right and wrong. And we do this over and above how we feel or think about certain aspects of it. I'll be honest, I'm a pastor. I've studied at seminary. There are things, standards God has set up in the Bible that if I were writing it, I would probably make them different. I don't necessarily like the way that he did everything. But it doesn't matter. I don't decide. I would be a horrible God. It's really good that I didn't get that job. Right? He is the standard, regardless of our intellectual or emotional feelings about the standard that he has set. And this is one of the ways that we as light expose darkness. We allow God to be God. We, we acknowledge that he is the one who gets to set the standard. We don't get to move it or change it, regardless of how we feel or which way the winds blow. And this is not just a an intellectual exercise, right? Where we say, yes, God's law is the law. Check the box, right? This then plays out in our lives, right? We follow through on this affirmation of God's law by resisting sin. We resist it. We recognize it for being the bad thing that it is, and we resist it in thought, word, and deed. And this is something we forget about a lot of times, guys. A lot of times we think of resisting temptation as this very personal thing, right? It's just me and... I've got my little battle, my little struggle here. 
but resisting temptation is actually an act of love, right? If we understand what sin is, that sin is this thing that always exploits and uses other people for your own gain. When you resist temptation, when you fight that with everything you have in you, you cast doubt on the promises of sin for other people. You encourage me when you fight sin because sin may tell me those same lies. And when I see you resisting them and trusting God's promises instead, that is a reminder for me. And it works the same way with the world, right? There are things that we do that the world makes no sense. Like, why in the world would they have a problem with that? No clue. Makes no sense to them. But the fact that we do and the fact that we resist those things that they don't resist it tells them that they may not know what it is, but there's another way. There's another narrative. The one that they believe is not the only way things may be. It casts doubt on the lies that sin tells. And that's an important part of our witness, right? There's not just one way. You don't have to buy the lies of sin hook, line, and sinker. There's another route, another path. But of course, we don't do this perfectly, right? We've acknowledged that multiple times in our service, how much we fail, how many times we do buy the lies of sin again, right? How we, we do, the blindness of our flesh comes over us and the lies are really convincing and sometimes we just want what we want and we just do these things. So the other thing we do, the other aspect of exposing darkness is that we bring our sin into light through confession, right? We do not keep our sin in darkness where it thrives. We, ex we expose it by acknowledging it to be what it is. We acknowledge it that it's sin. And we bring it out to where it's known and the li its lies lose its power. When we confess our sin, acknowledge that it is sin, it's much, much harder for it to lie now, right? Like it, it gets exposed and the power disappears. See, guys, when, when we are talked about as light, what we are bearing witness to is not our own self-righteousness, right? If it was, we'd have reason to hide, right? For a long time, I thought this, I talked about my witness being my appearance on the outside and all kinds of sin, and I would just kind of bury it so I'd look good on the outside. And I thought that was my Christian witness. That was my Christian witness. That was my witness to Patrick. It was like, make everybody think good about me. We are not witnesses to ourselves and our self-righteousness. We're witnesses to the provision of God through Jesus in the gospel. All right? So one of the most powerful things we can do before the world is actually acknowledge and confess our sin. That blows their minds because there's no category the world has for why confessing sin would be a good idea. Like, it it's, just doesn't make any sense. Why would you expose things that make you vulnerable, that make people think less of you, that could do all these horrible, it just, it doesn't make any sense. But for those of us who have the gospel, it makes complete sense. Because I am not here to elevate my self-righteousness. I don't have any self-righteousness. I actually need to not just repent of my sin, I need to repent of my righteousness. Scripture tells us even our righteousness is like filthy rags. We bring nothing good to the table. So because of that, we can confess our sin, bring it out into the light. And when we can acknowledge so many times, the way the world perceives the church is that we think we are better than them and we look down on them as the lousy sinners. We completely undercut that narrative when we lead with our sin 
and talk about how we sinned and how we hate it, and we're so thankful for the provision of Jesus. Like, that complete, that complete narrative about the church doesn't even work anymore. They have to completely readjust what they even think Christianity is now into something much more biblical, right? This is so incredibly powerful, right? When we die to our own self-righteousness and we are allowed and we let the world see the fact that we are not good enough and that we need Jesus, and that's what Christianity is actually not about. We're not the morally superior people. We are the people who trust and rest in Christ because we know we are bad. Then they actually start to see what Christianity actually is. And now they start to see a real alternative between the road they're running down and what is offered to us in Christ. The way we handle our sin is an incredibly powerful witness to the world. And this leads us to the last thing. The most important thing that the light does for the darkness is that it gives the darkness the true light, Jesus. I want to read those last two verses for you one more time. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. When I read this, I immediately thought of Jesus when he was here on earth and how he related and engaged with those who were unclean. Right, if you guys are familiar with the Old Testament law, there's these two categories. You were either ceremonially, religiously clean, or if you had sinned in certain ways or had certain physical things on, you were unclean. And there you go through this purification ritual. And when you were unclean, anything you touched became unclean. You had to isolate yourself. Quarantine's not a new thing, it turns out. Look at that. Um, but you know, that's his idea. Anything that was unclean, if it touched something clean, it defiled the clean thing. But when Jesus is on the scene... He goes around, and he touches unclean people. And what happens when Jesus touches unclean people? He doesn't become defiled. He makes them clean, right? This is what we have to offer the world, right? The world is not something to be feared, right? They can make things uncomfortable for us. Yes, they participate in all kinds of things we don't want to be a part of, but we bring to them the gospel. We get to bring to them Jesus. And just as he did for us, where he touched our uncleanness and gave us his perfect righteousness and took all the wrath of he does that for them, right? So yes, in this world, we will have trouble, but we have the one thing that they actually need, the one thing that can free them from their slavery, free them from their blindness. We have the Jesus who touch unclean things and makes them clean. And we get to take him to them. This means fear, even though we're sheep among wolves, fear does not govern the way we relate to the world. Neither the fear that would have us want them to like us, nor the fear that would have us set us up as enemies to them. We are neither. They are not our enemies. Sin are our enemies. We are here to rescue them. That's what it looks like to love them. They are not our enemies. They are enslaved by sin and death just as we were. And we have the one thing that can free them, the personal work of Jesus. And that is the whole reason Jesus sent us out as sheep among wolves. That's the only reason we are here is because he is still freeing captives. He is still breathing life into the dead. When he's done doing that, he'll take us away and everything will be glorious and comfortable and easy again. 
But the fact that he hasn't means that he's still rescuing people. And his church is his instrument that takes the gospel forward. That is what we are. That is what we are here for. All the false promises of sin that the world out there is believing. When you understand this, when you you look at them, man, when I look at what the world's doing, so much of it bothers me, but it mostly makes, I feel so bad. I feel so bad. I can just see the desperation and just the, the, the batting at the air in the dark, trying to find something to hold on to, something that will make them okay, something to know they will be all right, and they have nothing. So they go crazier and crazier and crazier lengths looking for it. This is the thing. All that sin promises, all the false promises, all the lies that lead to death have a true and better answer in Jesus. And we are his ambassadors. We are the ones who get to take that forward and preach freedom to the captives and life to the dead. So how do we relate to the world? We don't cater to the world in its destructive ways. We don't run down and approve and normalize sin to make them feel more comfortable. We don't relativize God's law to make it attainable. Nor do we hate the world, frustrated about how it makes our life more difficult or less comfortable. Right? Those are both selfish. And selfishness is the antithesis of love. We are not here now as beloved children who are to walk in love. We are not here to use the world for our own gain. We are here to give up ourselves for the good of the world, for its freedom and deliverance from sin in Jesus Christ. We are here for the world's rescue. We're here to love it by exposing the false promises of believing and offering them the real thing. It's like, I know, I know you're trying to be okay, and you can be, you just can't be like that. But you can be better than you ever thought was possible because of Jesus. What he promises is better than anything sin has ever offered you, let alone actually delivered. That's what we get to take forward. Right, but... We can't take that forward unless we understand it, right? We can't take this forward. I, I heard so many sermons and talks about evangelism where I've been kind of bludgeoned, like, go get out there, go tell them, right? Unless, real evangelism, real taking good news forward only happens when you really have actual good news to take. You can't get beaten into taking good news. So you just use car salesmen out there trying to sell a lemon, Right, the thing we need most to relate to the world well is a deep, rich understanding of our own need for Jesus. How desperately lost we are apart from him. How hopeless we are apart from him. And how he has been totally sufficient for everything that we've needed. Every aspect of our salvation, every aspect of everything we needed, he has provided completely. We have the best News. We have the only essential news in the world. So please don't hear this sermon and say, okay, you guys better go out. Three people this week, you better tell them about Jesus. No, that, that's not what I'm telling you here. I'm telling you, like, look deeply at Jesus and what he has done for you and your sin. Bask in the gospel. Remember what he has done for you. Let that light your face and light your heart. 
And then if that happens, you will relate to the world well. You will relate to the world like this. It will just spill out of you because nothing else will make sense. And that's why we have the Lord's Supper that we're gonna take now. Aaron's gonna come back up and lead us in one more song. And as he does, we, those of us whose faith and trust is in Christ, we get to partake of this meal. Uh, And it fits so well with this because this meal is designed to ground us in the true and better promises of Jesus and help protect us from all the false promises of sin that we encounter out in the world. So as we sing, and have you guys stand in a minute. We can start on the left. The elements are in the back of the room. You can come by. There's two cups stacked together, so you only need to get one. The bread's on the bottom. Juice is on top. And then after everybody's been served, I'll come back up and lead you guys through this. And I want to help you see how this is such a gift from God to help us um, see, behold, savor Jesus and to help us turn away and run away from the false promises of sin. So you guys would stand and let's sing and go receive the elements.